Hi, everyone. If you're listening, I have a small request to make. Please take a minute and give us a review on iTunes. We don't get a dime for this podcast. In fact, Joel didn't even buy me a drink at NKF. If you saw what Nyan drank, you wouldn't buy him a drink either. Your reviews go a long way in affirming, or not, the work that we put into this podcast. We really appreciate it. Thanks in advance. And now, without further ado, on to the episode. So, uh, when it comes to chips, uh, Poncho John. Poncho John. Nobody watched chips as a kid. No. I don't understand no. Okay, never mind. <laughs> that, that fell flat. I'm way older than you guys. Okay, uh... <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Please. Spare Actually, me. I'm going to put that in with just silence around <laughs> Four minutes. Oh, my God. Freely Filtered, the irregularly irregular podcast that summarizes and discusses recent NFJC journal clubs. NFJC is a Twitter nephrology journal club where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, we suggest that you talk with your doctor rather than the advice of some self-appointed randoms on a podcast. This podcast discusses off-label and unapproved medications. Hello, my name is Joel Toth, Kidney Boy on Twitter. Tonight we have Swap. Hey, I'm Swap Nil Hiramat. I'm a nephrologist and epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa. I tweet at H Swapnil and I don't have any disclosures today. Nayan. My name is Nayan Aurora. I'm a nephrologist at the University of Washington. I tweet at Captain Chloride. I don't have any conflicts of interest, but we do have two kids in our house, and what that has done to our life, we don't joke about pregnancy, so I'm going to be very serious this entire episode. Kind of a, a labor of love, if you will. Your words, not mine. <laughs> Josh. Josh Waitsman. I'm a nephrologist and scientist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center here in Boston. I tweeted Jay Waits, and I have no conflicts of interest for the episode. Sophia. Hi, I'm Sophia Ambruso. I'm a clinical nephrologist at the Denver VA and on faculty at the University of Colorado. I have no conflicts of interest, but I have been pregnant twice, and um, I think that's saying something. Excellent. And we have a special guest tonight. I'd like to introduce Dr. Natalie Bello. Natalie? Hi, I'm Natalie Bello. I am a cardiologist at Cedar sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. I tweet at Natalie Bello 9. And my conflicts of interest are that I am NIH funded to study hypertension in pregnancy. So you're saying well qualified to talk about this topic. Yes, though I have never been pregnant. I will add that. Okay, okay. Well, this may scare you, scare you off. Uh, tonight we are talking about the CHAPS study. Is that what we would call it? That's the um, treatment of mild chronic hypertension during pregnancy. And this is literally a rip up the guidelines type of study. Really changed the, will likely change the approach of mild hypertension in pregnancy. The dogma for a long time has been 
Don't do anything until the blood pressure gets over 160, over 110. Josh, you're raising your hand. What do you got there? Oh, just just let it ride. Just ignore the number until it's 160 yeah, or you have some it, other that's symptoms. That's exactly right. That's right, right, until you see some end organ damage or some other symptom. But the, the whole field of maternal fetal medicine or hypertension obstetrics has been wanting to have more aggressive care. And you've seen the studies that have been pushing for this more aggressive care. And this is, I think, one of the important studies that breaks through. There was a study a number of years ago, what, about seven years ago? I think it was also called CHAPS. CHIPS, and this is CHAP, CHAP singular. It's only one CHAP. So chronic hypertension in pregnancy and chronic hypertension and pregnancy. So in CHIP, CHIPS. CHIPS, chips plural, CHAP1. In CHIPS, they had, which I love, they had what it was intensive therapy versus less intensive therapy. Is that what, how they labeled it? And it was not very intensive at all. They were looking for what, uh, diastolics of 85 versus 105 or something like that. And it's interesting because the endpoint there was really just a safety endpoint. Was it safe? to get this lower blood pressure. Incidentally, they did find that there was less severe hypertension with the more aggressive care or the, the more intensive therapy. But the most important finding there was no difference in pregnancy outcomes. And that was one shoe. And that, that allowed this study to proceed knowing that it was safe to treat this less, less intensive hypertension. Do I have, am I setting that up nicely? Yeah, I think so. Can I ask a question here? Yeah. So the 160 and 140 numbers that come from chips into CHAP, I feel like in the rest of the blood pressure world, we were at 140 up until Sprint, and now we're at like a 140 versus 120 place. Is there a reason why we like stopped at 140 and didn't keep going lower? In pregnancy? In pregnancy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so... In pregnancy, it's really always first do no harm and measuring risk benefit for mom and fetus. And the theoretical concern of lowering blood pressure too far is placental hypoperfusion, having a small baby, other complications. And so I think they would have let it ride higher, honestly, but there is good old evidence that when you get above 160, 180, the risks of intracerebral hemorrhage are catastrophic. And so that's why 160 was sort of used as a, a nice buffer before 180. And there was just not enough evidence to say it was safe to go even to 140. So I don't think that there was any plan to lower. And at the time CHAP was designed, 140 was still the goal in non-pregnant adults. So the aim was to sort of match up with what we were doing in and out of pregnancy and have a, a similar recommendation. You know, it's interesting, just thinking back and, and thinking physiologically, one would stand to reason that it's actually not unusual for blood pressure to be lower in a healthy mother. You know, for example, my systolics never went above 100, and they're usually closer to, you know, the low 90s. And so it's so hard to imagine that here we are tolerating systolics or tolerating elevated blood pressures that we don't feel comfortable tolerating in the general population. And as I already said, physiologically, we sort of anticipate lower blood pressures anyways. So it's it's so hard to imagine that we've been so liberal. I understand that that's do no harm, but from a logical standpoint, one would stand to reason that that is doing harm. Yeah, but I'm not going to pretend to uh, I'm not going to pretend to understand placental perfusion. But I think there was concerns about low fetal birth weights, right? When with lowering blood pressure, which probably played into this. 
Well, there's no, I think there's no placental autoregulation, right? I mean, the uterine blood flow is what I, I think I read that's like a copper pipe. And so what uterine blood flow is what the placenta is getting. There's no autoregulation like we have with cerebral or with kidneys. So I know that that's the problem. But regardless of that, you know, if I, if my systolics are sitting at the 90s, I think my baby did just fine. I think probably people who are coming with really high blood pressures and dropping them rapidly might be a different issue. But in any case... I think one of the other parts of this calculation is that if somebody develops hypertension in their 14th week, we're only talking about a few months of hypertension. Normally, when we think about the risk of hypertension, we're talking about years and decades, right? And so I think that goes into that calculation that we're really only talking about, you know, what's the absolute risk of 14 weeks or 18 weeks or 20 weeks of this hypertension? And that kind of ameliorates it, or at least that was the argument uh, that may be less uh, compelling nowadays. Exactly. I mean, if you talk about sprint, it took, you know, three years to show a difference in, in 9,000 patients or so. So That's even uh, longer than an elephant exactly, gestation, exactly. right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that, that amount of gestation <laughs> will be pretty long. But the physiologic changes in pregnancy happen so dramatically and the remodeling that happens, it happens really quickly. So it is a completely different physiologic state. Yeah, yeah, no, no, exactly that. No, but for that reason, if you look at the guidelines, and we have that table up on, on the summary, in FJC summary, the ACOG guideline is higher, uh, but the, uh, you know, the Canadian guideline is 140 over 90, and, and I think NICE is also 140, 90 in UK. Uh, the Australian have kind of 160 over 100, but it's optional to go to 140, 90. Uh, and again, it's it's the when you look at the same, all of these societies have looked at the same trials, and you can say, hey, you know, it's it's I guess they looked at chips, and they said it's not unsafe to go to one to lower. So why don't we go lower? Uh, so you can, it's sort of like, you know, the glass is half full or half empty. Yeah, we have a nice uh, review article looking at the different guidelines by country. Uh, Rachel Sinke is the first author of that. And Alan Tita is actually the senior author of that review as well. Because I, I agree. I think it's really interesting how the same data can be looked at so differently by different regulatory agencies. And getting back to Joel, your point about nine months, you know, when I got into this field as a cardiologist, I got a lot of slack saying, you know, people are pregnant for nine months. How are you going to build a career around something that comes and goes? And why do you care? And when we look at the heightened risk of cardiovascular disease, of chronic kidney disease after things like preeclampsia. I think we're only now starting to understand how important either the normal adaptations to pregnancy are or what a harbinger of future badness, abnormal adaptations like hypertension can be and how this is like the canary in the coal mine for women's health. Natalie, I got a, I got a question. What's the consensus? And if there isn't one, that's fine too. What's the consensus? Is it that damage from the preeclampsia then leads to these subsequent events? Or is it a person who is predisposed to these subsequent events also is predisposed to preeclampsia? What's the consensus? So I would say there's definitely overlap and some predisposition. But my personal belief is there is actual vascular damage resulting from preeclampsia from the anti-angiogenic expression of things like soluble flit coming from the placenta that really causes microvascular death. I mean, we know what happens when we give these as chemotherapeutic agents and how they can lead to cardiac dysfunction, vascular dysfunction that is long lasting. It just makes sense that this is something that, you know, hopefully it's mild enough that it can be overcome by redundancy in the vasculature. But I think that's a a direct effect. 
Excellent. And that's the anti-angiogenesis drugs that we're using in chemo- as chemotherapy, as chemotherapy. Agents that you're referring yeah, to. Yeah, it's sort of similar to the VEGF inhibitors we use in, you know, like Avastin and other things that cause hypertension, that, you know, cause microvascular dysfunction. The placenta over secretes this molecule called soluble FLT, which is a VEGF, it's a soluble VEGF inhibitor. You need some of it in a normal pregnancy. You need to detach this very vascular placenta from the uterus. So as a, a person is approaching term, it makes sense that some of this anti-angiogenic process has to happen. You need these huge spiral arteries that remodel to involute and detach so that you don't hemorrhage and die evolutionarily like we would not still exist if everyone's placenta kept bleeding when it popped out. It's important to survive right. to have more kids you later need to on. to keep it going. But there's obviously a happy middle. And so when you've got too much secretion because of maybe ischemic signaling and other pathways that lead to this, you then see off-target effects outside into the systemic circulation. Excellent. Do we want to talk any more about the setup or do we want to move, are we ready to move into the methods? Is there any, Natalie, do you have any other things, any other thoughts that you wanted to share before we dove right in? No, I think those are, those are really the high points that like the evidence is sparse. Thankfully we did something. Hopefully it will change practice. The one thing I would like to add is that as the blood pressure targets get more and more aggressive, the fact that you've only have four drugs and a few of them really suck <laughs> is going to become more and more of a problem. They're terrible and you have to dose them all the time. I know. Yeah. How did you end up with labetalol and nifedipine and hydralazine and oh, alpha methyl dopa? Oh, Who the hell uses oh, alpha methyl dopa? You can't even get it in the it's U.S. It's tradition, right? It's tradition. Yeah, it's you can't tradition. even get it. Really, it's just not it's even hard available to get in the U.S. I don't know. I inherited this. I'm not that old. Come on. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Why is it still on the boards then? If you can't even get it, it should uh, be on it the It is, boards. Not, and honestly, in low and middle income countries, it is their first line agent because of stability and availability and access to something is better than dying of eclampsia. Honestly, so it exists. Natalie, are there other medicines that you use in the treatment of hypertension in pregnancy aside from those ones that are the right board's answers? I mean, <laughs> it's a great question. Uh, I think we we do still go for first-line agents, labetalol, nifedipine. I prefer nifedipine because it's once-a-day dosing. You know, you use the, the ER version. In certain individuals who are on amlodipine before they get pregnant, who feel pretty strongly about continuing that, we use it pretty routinely. You do use amlodipine? Yeah, we do. It's, the, it's certainly okay, no, not. I'm, I'm just. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not accusing you. Yeah. I, just want to make sure. <laughs> like, I, I think that's great. You know, we should use more amlodipine. Yeah. You know, I think it, it can get tricky in people who haven't been on it before, who develop peripheral edema, because you know we all see that all the time, and then you're really stuck. Like, oh my goodness, is this you know sort of preeclampsia in the making? So it's not something. It's definitely not my go-to in people who are naive to it, but it, it's a great drug, I think. Okay, they were much more leaning towards labetalol in the study, just kind of looking at the distribution of drugs. And the other one, at least according to up to date, was that the thiazides, you're probably fine with this, that a lot of the concerns about this not really have not materialized. Probably you're clean to use a thiazide type diuretic. Is that right? Do you have some thoughts? 
I personally can't stand hydrochlorothiazide. I think it's a not great well, anti-hypertensive. Yeah, welcome to the club. You are you are good company here. You are oh, good company. You have been here. inducted this into the nephrology team, world. Team chlorthaladone here. Okay, uh, I'm 100 percent or in or in dapamide. If you're in the stones, love it, love it. <laughs> we no, can't love get it. that. It's hard to get. It costs a lot of money, but I love it. It's rare that we have a woman of the age when she becomes pregnant, like could be eligible to become pregnant, to be on those stronger meds. They usually come to us from a primary care doctor, maybe on 12 and a half of hydrochlorothiazide. And you're like, eh, this is homeopathy, but whatever. Would you start a thiazide? Are there concerns about volume depletion and That is a theoretical concern, volume depletion, dropping preload to the placenta. And again, like I don't go to it because I think one, it's a terrible antihypertensive agent. And two, if you have concerns about side effects and you have little efficacy, what's the upside to giving that medicine? Sometimes we'll use it in people who have, and not necessarily hydrochlorothiazide, but a diuretic postpartum and people who are struggling with edema and hypertension, I think it's a great option. Um, and sometimes I'll, we'll just go straight to Lasix in the short term. Do you see much antihypertensive effect with the furosemide? A postpartum, yes, because it's almost all, this is postpartum, this is almost all volume, all volume related, related and they, they just need to, move, they they just need to mobilize need all to that. Mobilize it, and they're healthy and their EFs are good and they just, you know, it works like a champ for five days and then you see if they even need anything or if it was really truly just volume i mean these people sometimes get 12 liters of fluid during a c-section and you're like where did that go okay okay swap unload some methods on us all right the chap study was funded by the nhlbi this is uh, all american sites more than 70 recruiting sites and what they did so in terms of the population the women had to be before 23 weeks of gestation. That's number one. Uh, The second thing is they had to have hypertension. So hypertension could either be that they were untreated and they had high blood pressure or they could be treated with a certain, you know, slightly different blood pressure range. And a small segue into the blood pressure measurement, it was with the Omron 907 which is the same um, the sprint, uh, use the in sprint, sprint machine. Exactly. So it's, uh, and all the sites uh, for screening, they were, they were recruited and trained to use that. So I think even for screening, this is the method that was used, which is, which is good, which is fantastic. And was it similar to the way sprint was, was it unobserved Were the patients alone in a dark room listening to Enya or something like that? No. I mean, they were, they were <laughs> OB clinics, right? They, like, isn't that what an OB clinic is like? They are very, they're very busy OB clinics, but because this site came, the trial came out of Alabama where Sprint came from as well, there was a lot of consistency in the methods and the, the device was chosen specifically for that reason too, having had good experiences with it in Sprint. So, so though it wasn't quiet, it, it was an average of three measurements, right? Okay. Okay. Why 23 weeks, not 20 weeks, for example? I mean, this was to exclude gestational hypertension, I'm assuming? So gestational hypertension is diagnosed after 20 weeks. So before 20 weeks, it's chronic. It was a little bit of a practical timing issue because they had to have at least two documented blood pressures in range and the range depended on whether they were on meds or not. And so, you know, you're not going to have these people come back. These are young, healthy people who are working. They're not going to come back for a research visit in a week. So it was to give them a little bit of time and flexibility. So as long as the first visit was before 20 weeks to really clearly say this is 
chronic hypertension and not gestational hypertension. There was a little bit of leeway up to 23 weeks. And then the, there was an ultrasound too. I don't want to steal all the methods from you, but yeah, yeah. you needed ultrasound yeah. confirmation. Exactly. Of so what? The, the, of the, the baby? Weeks of gestation. The gestational age of the baby. Oh, okay. Yeah, we just, just don't rely on the history. So the... Uh, <laughs> For, for people who are untreated, for women who are untreated, the blood pressure had to be more than 140 or uh, more than 90 for diastolic on at least two occasions, four hours apart, uh, not four weeks apart, because, you know, if you do it four weeks apart, you're going to lose uh, <laughs> a bunch of them. And and this had to be before 20 weeks of gestation. And then you these know, are you for the people that are untreated. untreated. Right. And I okay. guess you had the three weeks to get the ultrasound done and to enroll them into the trial. That's why they're yeah. 23. So 20 plus. And three. for apparently their blood pressure to get better. If I don't know if you've, uh, that's tipping the, the results, but go on. Well, their blood pressure should get higher as they enter the second trimester. So it didn't. Though. I know. I mean, the blood pressure, <laughs> the, the blood pressures on enrollment are, should not have been. A, go on. That's part of my theory about the study. Exactly. <sighs> Exactly. Anyway, so the, the other part for the people who are treated is, is that their blood pressure had to be less than 160 over 105. Am I right? Yes. Yeah, 160 over 105. So 105 is slightly different than the 160 over 110, uh, which is the guideline. Uh, and I, they, they talk about it here and in the supplement as well, is that there was a concern that 105 to 110, people would be uncomfortable and they would treat them. So they said, you know, let's choose 160 over 105 to be on the safer side. So they had to be less than 160 or 105 and they could be if they were on treatment and they were adherent, but they could be even lower than 140-90 if they were on treatment. Was there a lower limit or any blood pressure that was treated was enrollable? I didn't see a lower limit. Uh, they, as long as they were on treatment, uh, okay. they were okay. Swap, can I clarify this? Because I feel like this is confusing. Yeah. If someone is chronically hypertensive, is pregnant... Our guidance before this was that we should definitely give them an antihypertensive if their blood pressure rises above 160. There's probably no harm based on chips to go lower, but there was no evidence that they should have a blood pressure of 130 before the trial. Is that right? That is right. In the absence of diabetes or chronic kidney disease or another really compelling indication, there was true equipoise about how low blood pressure should be. And it was really sort of shared decision-making discussion between patients and their doctors. Do you want to continue your medicine if you were on it before and you know you feel comfortable? Great. There are a lot of people who felt like when they become pregnant, they don't want to take anything. You know, there's a lot of guilt and shame in our culture if anything happens to the baby that you know maybe that's because you took this medicine and you didn't need to take it so there are a lot of people who personally choose to let their blood pressure go up to levels they were uncomfortable with outside of pregnancy because of this sort of societal pressure almost it's a very interesting psychology so so i guess to josh's point again uh, i i guess these are patients in whom you know, they were on blood pressure medications. Their BP is 135 over 80 or whatever. Uh, and the obstetrician or the family doctor is not stopping their pills. right? Until they get enrolled in the damn study. This is the thing that's so disturbing about the study, right? Uh, uh, is these patients yeah, get hang enrolled. On, hang, on. hang on, hang on. Hold your horses. <laughs> we are not into labor yet. Um, so, uh, uh, and as Dr. Bell, as Natalie said, you know, they needed to have the gestational age, which was determined according to the ACOG criteria by ultrasound before the randomization was done. So, you know, again, they needed some time uh, for all this to be done. Uh, in terms of the exclusion, very high level, anyone with uh, a blood pressure, this is severe hypertension. And, and it's mentioned one place that was more than 160, 110. 
uh, was severe hypertension. So anyone who had high, really high blood pressure, they could not enroll in this trial because they did need, need to be treated. Uh, anyone with another indication like, you know, diabetes, chronic kidney disease, those people were excluded, known secondary hypertension. Uh, multiple fetuses, so this was only single, singleton uh, pregnancies, and anyone who did not had a contraindication to the first line antihypertensive medications like you know, uh, labetalol or or nifedipine. If someone isn't going to tolerate them, then they said, hey, let's not have them in this study. All right, I'm, I'm going to confess that I'm a terrible nephrologist and I don't know what the blood pressure target I should be treating women who are pregnant who have CKD is. What? Why are they excluded from this trial, or or what's the target that's different from this? There is no gold standard number like Kadigo. Kid, I'm gonna, you're gonna kill me. I don't know. Is it Kadigo? Kadigo. Kadigo. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you can say you can say Kadigo. Oh, okay. Well, that that guideline. They don't actually say a, a solid number. There's just this recommendation that it's sort of at your discretion to treat to what you would treat them to outside of pregnancy. I have I have lots of discretion. That's good. <laughs> No, I just think that's a population that's at such high risk for bad outcomes yeah. that people are not going to feel comfortable randomizing them to placebo. I think that's the issue there. But diabetes was not an exclusion criteria. Almost 16% had diabetes. Right. Yeah, sorry. Diabetes wasn't. I'm wrong. Yes. Um, I think it was diabetes with complications, maybe. Uh, that I don't know. I'll have, now, now I'll have to read the supplement. Yeah. Patients currently in DKA were excluded <laughs> from the trial. If they were on an insulin drip, definitely not allowed. Yeah, it was it was diabetes with complications, including retinopathy. Oh, yeah. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> in terms of intervention, we talked about the blood pressure measurement, of course. So then the assignment uh, in the intervention arm, they were assigned to a treatment goal less than one forty ninety, and standard was you know uh, control in which antihypertensive treatment was withheld until the blood pressure went to one sixty over one o five. Now here's where I didn't understand, and I think even in the summary when we wrote, we didn't understand something. So they said if severe hypertension was identified in the control group, the target BP was less than 140-90. Okay, I mean, that's a sentence in the main paper. In the control group, this means that firstly, blood pressure was allowed to go up to 160 over 105. And that's when you, you know, uh, instituted medications. But if they had severe hypertension, which is like, they don't give a number there, then they said, oh, the target should be less than 140 over 90. I don't know if that's a typo or uh, it's uh, it's mean. I mean, something. it sounds like what if they got to severe, then they would start treating them, and then they would target a blood pressure of less than one hundred and forty over ninety. They would use the chips data. That right. Way, I, think, I think. I think in the supplement there was a discrepancy. Mm -hmm. The supplement says one hundred and sixty over one hundred and five, not one hundred and forty over ninety. Yeah. Any any insight there, Natalie? Blood pressures in the severe range are considered a medical emergency, and we do usually lower them to 140 over 90. That would be a target at that point because of the risk of impending severe preeclampsia, eclampsia. But I, I have to admit, I am not 100% certain of yeah, the discrepancy. Yeah. So it, it may be just like a clinical, clinically it's, severe hypertension. Yeah, I think that yeah, that's it. It may be a clinical diagnosis. Yeah. And Natalie, in this group, we do not supplement shame you. If you didn't read the supplement, <laughs> I've read the you're in good I have company. read the supplement. I can't say We I know that Joel did not read the supplement. I did not read the supplement. It's <laughs> <laughs> like a recurring joke on this podcast. <laughs> we will not supplement shame anyway. Right. It's an extensive supplement. There's a lot of tables in there. And I don't even understand. Some I think are similar to the main tables. And I... 
Can I clarify a point that I think Joel kind of hit on a, a little bit ago? That if you had a, if you were chronically hypertensive on antihypertensive medicines and randomized to the control arm, were your antihypertensive medicines taken away from you, or were you just left on them to ride as you were? They they were taken away from you. How effectively they were taken away is a separate matter, but it says that that was the plan that they were taken away. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean, they would let blood pressures ride up to 160. And some of the people who I think weren't enrolled out of the screened groups were people whose physicians didn't feel comfortable doing that. I'm still confused about this. So is that, I know you mentioned that that's a discussion usually between patient and provider. What's in your experience what is standard of care there to continue to treat blood pressure Good question. it really honestly is a case-by-case decision and and some of it it depends on the phys- so i as a cardiologist feel more aggressive about blood pressure and will encourage people even before this I would say I think you know your blood pressure is in a good range you feel good you've been on these medicines for a long time or you know we're titrating you off onto a different medicine but you know most patients who are pretty on board with medications feel fine continuing them but there are a good I would say maybe a quarter or more of patients who don't want to take anything They'll take a prenatal vitamin and that's about it. I mean, I'd love to go off topic and talk a little bit about aspirin use in the trial. I mean, it's appalling that it was a quarter of people at enrollment when this is something that 100% of these patients should have been on. They all are at high risk for preeclampsia. Aspirin is the only thing that has been shown to reduce risk of preeclampsia. It got better over the course of the trial, but still was 75%, I think, by the end. And because these patients had hypertension, that's what pushes them into the high risk. That is their high risk factor. I mean, and if you look at the table one, many of them have multiple high risk factors and should be taking aspirin. And But I... I struggle with this with my patients even before they get pregnant. I start to get them like warmed up to the idea of a baby aspirin. And it literally is baby in the name. I mean, baby aspirin. Yeah. <laughs> what are the other risk factors? You said there's other risk factors. What what are the, what are the other risk factors that you are seeing that would say you need an aspirin? Hypertension clearly is one. Hypertension. Seven percent are smokers. Fifteen uh, percent have diabetes. Uh, BMI is over thirty. Hey, why are you stealing my thunder, Swap? Sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we had, let's. So that's Joel. He's asking me about. The I, I am. I'm just. Yeah. He was asking Natalie. Technically, swap. You're just jumping in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like it's fun to talk about aspirin. It doesn't work for anything yeah. else anymore, except for my patients who've had STEMIs and this. <laughs> like. <laughs> and another thing, right? In a, even in a clinical trial, they couldn't get it to 100 percent. Right. It, which is so preeclampsia focused, right? That's an. Well, and, but why is that not even part of the protocol? So that's a great question, and I feel like I need to ask Alan that, and I'm very curious because, you know, as a cardiologist, if we published a, an ACS study and we didn't have 98 to 99% of people on DAPT, people would say, what are you doing? You know, like this is standard well, of care. And especially when one of the outcomes of is interest pre-eclampsia. is preeclampsia and you're talking about it so what eight eight or ten percent effective i mean it's not this is not a wonder no, drug by any means, no no right? no not at all but i strongly 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 recommend to my patients that they take baby aspirin and there are trials ongoing looking at one versus two baby aspirin there's 
some suggestion actually given the rise in obesity that 81 milligrams maybe isn't enough. And I think there's a trial either ongoing or being planned looking at one versus two baby aspirin in the United States for preeclampsia prevention in people at overweight or obese but we can't get people to take one. So again, and I think a lot of it comes back to people don't want to take anything. And I've had high level discussions with highly educated patients who just, they understand the risk benefit and their perception of risk benefit is different than mine. And they don't tolerate any risk. Whereas I feel like I tolerate lots of benefit and eh, risk is theoretical. Like what's the downside to taking a baby aspirin? You get a GI bleed, we'll, we'll stop it. Exactly. And talking of medications for the blood pressure medications, you know, they, they had labetalol, of course, as one of the chief ones. And it went all the way up to 2400 uh, was the maximum daily dose. For nifedipine, uh, ER, retard, which was the second uh, option, it went up to 120 milligrams a day. And then, you know, amlodipine, hydrochlorothiazide, alpha-methyl dopa. There were a few other patients. Uh, so that were... There was just a handful options. of patients on these Very other handful, drugs. Exactly. It was all labetalol. It was all labetalol and nifedipine. Exactly right. Uh, during clinic visits, they dis- did ask about adherence. That's how and pill counts were performed. So adherence was assessed in terms of outcome. So the main outcome, the primary outcome, is a composite of preeclampsia with severe features occurring up to two weeks after birth, then medically indicated preterm birth before 35 weeks because of, you know, maternal or fetal illness, not because of spontaneous labor or a membrane rupture, a placental abruption. I'm sorry. So isn't shouldn't there be overlap? Like, isn't one of the big indications for preterm delivery going to be preeclampsia? Right. So medically indicated preterm birth is so these would be outside of preeclampsia because otherwise they would have been counted earlier with the preeclampsia right. yeah. so right. other exactly. indications for a preterm birth exactly so like non-reassuring fetal heart rates or decreased fetal movement there's all sorts of stuff that we learned in medical gotcha. school okay. that's like oh yeah i delivered a baby once then uh, placental abruption or fetal or neonatal death so that was the uh, composite outcome and then preeclampsia was defined uh, according to the acog criteria which we all know uh, and then a, a blood pressure of uh, one, or more than 160 or 100 in the absence of uh, preeclampsia, proteinuria was not sufficient, right? They needed like clear-cut preeclampsia, just a blood pressure, you know, oh, this smells like preeclampsia. So, so that was uh, useful. But severe hypertension was one of the outcomes, right? That's not the primary outcome. Not a primary, outcome. it's a secondary exactly, outcome. Exactly, exactly. Gotcha. Um, then they had this pre-specified subgroup analysis based on whether, you know, it was the newly diagnosed versus chronic hypertension. Uh, based on race or ethnic group, which is pretty fascinating, to be honest, uh, the diabetes status, uh, the gestational age at enrollment, you know, if someone was enrolled before 14 or after 14 weeks, and the BMI. So there were five subgroups which were pre-specified. Uh, and then there was a primary safety outcome, right? Uh, this was the primary efficacy outcome. The primary safety outcome was the uh, the concern has been that with lower blood pressure, you may cause growth retardation. So that was poor fetal growth, which was defined as birth weight less than the 10th percentile. And also looked at small for gestational age birth weight uh, less than the fifth percentile. And then they had a bunch of secondary outcomes uh, like uh, maternal death, uh, serious complications like heart failure, stroke, uh, MI, angina, and and a long list of them. And other maternal outcomes did include preeclampsia alone or worsening chronic hypertension or severe hypertension that Joel mentioned. The stats is a little bit interesting. So I know we have talked a lot about methods, but I'll mention that briefly, very, very briefly. Uh, They had assumed that they would get a 16% baseline event rate in the control group. 
and uh, you know they would need 4700 patients uh, according to that calculation now after 800 patients had been enrolled or sorry had completed the trial they did a blinded assessment of the event rate and they found the event rate was actually higher at 30% it wasn't 16% never it was 30% it's always the other direction right uh, so because they had a higher uh, thing and maybe you know maybe money is tight and and you need to get the trial done they said hey we can get this trial done with a smaller sample that's size. why they didn't use aspirin, no, aspirin to yeah. save money Have events yeah <laughs> so they got uh, they, they 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 dialed uh, dialed it down to uh, about half uh, from 4700 to 2400 it seems okay i don't see anything wrong in that you know many of the times when you do a power calculation you pull out and you know uh, an event out of the air and sometimes you get something else swap do you have a sense of where this 16% idea number come came from for them like where would you come up with that kind of a guess because i'm just looking at the at the chips trial which is the previous trial and it looks like the preeclampsia outcome is in like the 40 to 50% range and that's at a higher blood pressure though hmm. uh, so maybe that was uh, a ploy to get more money from NHLBI. We're just going to funnel it into the next study. It's a cover to get the money. string budget, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. In, uh, up to date, they said people with hypertension have about an 8% rate of preeclampsia. Just, just looking at preeclampsia mm-hmm. is what I was looking at. But they listed that black people and other minorities have a higher risk of this. And this is a huge minority population in this study, like half of the, about half the study, right? More than that. Yeah, it was over 60%. Really? The only other thing is they did do an interim analysis. So they dropped the alpha from 0.05 to 0.049. So everything else is legitimate, right? Intention to treat analysis, et cetera, et cetera. So we won't waste our time on that. The rest of the stuff is all good. Anybody have any other comments about methods? Natalie, this ends up on your table. You have, you're the, you're reviewer number two. Take them to task. Reviewer what do you two. got? Oh, man. I don't think I got enough sleep last night to be a reviewer two. Uh, <laughs> I, mean, I think for me, I completely applaud them for their incredible enrollment of a diverse patient population, as was Just looking at the methods. Just looking at the methods. Themselves, I think they're, they plus. had to, I think it was reasonably designed. I think there's a lot of components to the composite primary outcome, but. I think knowing how rare some of these events are and how they all need to be counted because they're equally potentially devastating if they occur, I think it makes sense clinically. So I don't, you know, at the end of the day, I think it was all pre-specified. I don't have any problems with that. The screening process to get to the number of enrolled patients, you know, I think it was like, what, 10% of those screened Mm -hmm. ended up enrolled? Yes. Yeah. We're going to get to the met. We'll get yeah. to the results, but you're you're pretty happy with the methods. I think you the don't have any major. Per- no, I think. I mean, I think it's an important question. It's well addressed in the way that they did it. They used the drugs that would be used, except for aspirin. Except for aspirin. Except for aspirin. Right, we we right. knock them for the aspirin. Okay. I've already griped about that. Gripe recorded. Thank you, Sophia. Hit us with some results. All right. So just starting from the top, they ended up screening almost 30,000 women and 2,419 were randomized, uh, but a couple dropped out. So there's final randomization group of 2,408 and 1,208 were randomized to the treatment group and 1,200 to the control group. So getting to the baseline characteristics that everybody was excited to talk about 
more than um, half or 56% had chronic hypertension and were already on antihypertensive medications. 22% had known hypertension but were not taking medications and in 22% were newly diagnosed. Now what to bring up here, and I think this is what Joel was alluding to earlier, is that the mean blood pressures at baseline um, was 132 plus or minus 12.5 over a diastolic of 84 uh, plus or minus 9.5. So it's just interesting that that's as low as it is. But remember, these patients are also coming in who are being treated, right? They're already being treated. So they're known hypertensives. And that's 50%, 56% of the population that was enrolled. So it's not surprising that they have lower blood pressures if they're already being treated. So that's but probably you would, one of the reasons If that was the why. case, if that was the case, you would expect the control group's blood pressure to shoot up in the following weeks as those drugs are withdrawn, right? If the reason that was significant, I mean, you know, I'm looking at, I'm looking at figure one, and I circle 140 over 90, which is the very top of the graph, and that's supposed to be the enrollment level. And they're way and they're they're way below that, and they never even get close to that. And the thing is, they were supposed to stop medications and let the blood pressure sp- float up in the control. So I guess yeah. they did that, but they were probably afraid, and they didn't do that as aggressively as they did it in sprint. And again, this is sort of the opposite side. Like if, if there are still people out there who criticize sprint saying, you know, in real life, who stops medications to let BP go up, right? That was not right. Sprint is terrible for doing that. But then you end up in a study like this where, you know, the separation is not a lot. And then you criticize it again, right? Like Joel doesn't like this right now. Uh, But it it is difficult. It is difficult to stop medications and said, oh, I will let your BP become worse. I don't want to get curtrailed by sprint, but I just like people that have that criticism. It's just, it's absurd. You're like, the whole point of that is to get separation between these two groups, Right, and it's not to have standard of care versus a more intensive care. That was not the experiment. That's a distraction. That argument. But um, here they here they stopped blood pressure meds, and the blood pressure went down. Yeah, it's it, the just the difference in these blood pressures is so modest throughout the entire trial. Like the Hawthorne effect or something, right? People are getting good care, and but isn't isn't this event rate higher than? standard twice the event rate that they expected yeah. right they had a 30 percent expect rate they were expecting so, 16 it doesn't seem like great care either way i think they had a sicker population than they anticipated mm-hmm. i mean so i'm going to get to the rest of the baseline characteristics but i mean if you look at it 75 percent of them had a bmi greater than 30 and of those 50 percent of them were considered morbidly obese sorry is that a pregnant bmi or is that a pre-pregnancy no no BMI? this is they take the bm they, they take the pre-pregnancy weight to calculate because that's right it's not fair otherwise okay so very heavy population yeah which is one of these risk factors for these bad hypertensive complications of pregnancies okay what else in table one what else is in table one Uh, 55 percent were on government assisted insurance or medicaid 16 percent had diabetes and then black women constituted 48 percent of the study participants and then of course aspirin 44 to 5 percent were on that so that's the main Mainstays of the characteristics. Please tell me we're done with table one. Wait, no, well, no, just, no. no. Table Wait, one, come on. It's, uh, it's quite a black population and his non, uh, I mean, non-white Hispanic uh, population. Plus, many of them were on Medicaid. It seems a little bit like they, is it possible that these were centers where, which cater to predominantly that kind of population? Or is it like, you know, that white women didn't want to enroll in an RCT? What's going on here? It it's seems an interesting a question. Odd. 
I mean, I think if you look at the demographics of the United States and who of childbearing age has hypertension, you know, you think about social determinants of health and what really plays into the rising, you know, rates of hypertension, it's poor access to food, obesity, and these are centered in groups of people who live in cities near academic medical centers. So some of it is the sort of catchment area of the academic centers that were recruiting centers for this. I don't think in any of the supplements that there is a demographic breakdown of recruited but not enrolled versus the enrolled patients. It's an interesting question. I would say, you know, having been at a site that recruited a lot of patients for CHAP. This is the demographics that we saw at Columbia. I don't think that this is not atypical. And I would say, you know, for some of the other big sites that I work with on other trials, these are similar demographics to what we see. These are the high-risk population I, And to be honest, I think these are the people who are experiencing the worst outcomes. So in some way, it's really great that they were willing to enroll in these tri- in this trial. I was also just looking, this is exactly what you'd expect. So 82 to 83% of these had at least one prior pregnancy because it's so hard to do a study in pregnant women. You know, these were all people who were like, eh, it's the second child, no big deal. I got one at home, do what you need to do. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I would say people who had a complication in their first pregnancy were more interested uh, and are more interested in being in research in my experience because they know how dangerous pregnancy is and they're more interested in anything that gets them more visits more care more interaction and maybe that is some of like the hawthorne effect we were talking about with the the blood pressure and your experience has a lot more compassionate and sensitive than a and does i'll say well, I have life experience with the second child. <laughs> uh, I actually had a question here too. So, so we've kind of harped on this entry systolic blood pressure in table one of around 133, 134. Um, and we had said going into the trial, there was kind of wide disagreement or there was a lack of consensus about what blood pressure we should be targeting or where you could ride a blood pressure at into pregnancy. It seems like people are targeting a blood pressure that's lower than 140 most of the time, judging by that being the place where people are going in. Is that fair? Like people are really mostly in the 130s or trying to get there before this trial? Or is that just, there's a whole lot of variation here and that just happens to be where these folks level out? I think a lot of that is the hemodynamics of pregnancy with this huge change in SVR that happens in the first trimester. We see a lot of people's blood pressure, like their blood pressure before they were pregnant with no changes was probably above what we would consider target for Mm -hmm. someone who's that age. So I think some of this is just, you know, there's so much vasodilatation, the placenta becomes this vascular sink, cardiac output goes up to sort of make up for it. But we do see systolic and diastolic decline a lot and they start to creep up middle of the second trimester to the third trimester so it's not crazy i don't think that this is necessarily like aggressive treatment that led to this i think gotcha. this is- so the idea of targeting folks with like chronic hypertension is to catch them here enroll them and then pick a goal that actually they would in theory differentiate at once they hit 20 weeks or a little later i think that's the theory okay keep rolling on these results All right. So we touched on this already. Labetalol and mifetapine were primarily used for hypertensive management with labetalol being the top choice. Approximately 90% of patients in the active treatment group received antihypertensive medications 
and only 24 and a half patients received them in the control group. So the mean blood pressure in the active treatment group was 129.5 over 79. And I'm sorry, I just want to make sure I get this straight. We had 24% of the people in the standard group on meds. That means that 24% of these patients crossed 160 over 105. Is that what it means? Mm-hmm. Yeah, or they were on, maybe they were on two meds and one medication was stopped or something. So this that's a control group. So they were taken off all their antihypertensive swap. So if they were on meds, they crossed that threshold. That's wild. I mean, that's a, okay. That's scary. It's scary. And it doesn't, again, it doesn't jive with that table number one, that that figure number one, where you have a quarter of these patients that had to cross that threshold to get treated, where these blood pressures are, you know, averaging again, you know, in the one, you know, when the 180s over low 130s. But I don't know what blood pressures go into that figure. You know, if you were admitted, does that, you know, are these the blood pressures in this figure one, just the sort of clinic visits for the trial? And maybe you had an admission for a hypertensive emergency, but that blood pressure wasn't a clinical trial visit. So it's probably not in that figure. Okay. That would be my guess. I don't know. Put that down as a maybe. (laughs) <laughs> wishful th- in the wishful Real thinking hand waving that, here right now that would be supplement two which i also did not read <laughs> okay so i'm going to go back and just reiterate the mean blood pressure in the active treatment group was 129 over 79 versus one just about 133 over 81 and a half um, in the standard treatment group so that was a mean difference of 3.1 millimeters of mercury for systolics and 2.3 for diastolics Uh, And what I will highlight here is like the greatest separation happened in early and middle duration of the pregnancy, whereas that gap closed rather dramatically later on in pregnancy. Moving on, the primary outcome, and just to remind everybody what that was, it was a composite of fetal or neonatal death, preeclampsia with severe features, medically indicated preterm birth before 35 weeks gestation or placental abruption. And that occurred in 30% of the active treatment group compared to 37% in the control group. And there was an adjusted risk ratio of 0.82 and a confidence intervals of 0.73 to 0.92. And uh, I don't know if Swap likes me mentioning this, but the number needed to treat was 14.7. I, I think it's okay. In, in this, this is like a short-term study, right? So it's, it's pretty okay. You know, we don't like the number needed to treat when... It's a two-year study and, you know, someone will be alive for 10 years. And what does it mean? What was the number needed to treat? 14. It's like a little more than 15, yeah. We're under 15. Isn't 14. that better than, like, renal and... Everything. Better than ACE inhibitors and very good. It's yeah. a great very number. Very good. That's unbelievable. Especially when you're using cheap meds like labetalol and nifedipine. <laughs> <laughs> I bet it's a better number needed to treat than the aspirin debt. Mm-hmm. Right? Because that's only like a, a, a something that has an incidence of 8% and they only about 10% effectiveness. It'll definitely be better than that. I can't remember. I, I feel like the number needed to treat is something like 12 for aspirin. Oh, uh, uh. But. I don't know. Can I ask a figure one question? I know we want to move on here. I just, I feel like I'm confused about the data visualization choices here by presenting the data based on the date of randomization as opposed to the date of pregnancy, because it seems like the physiology is more important than the date when you enrolled in the trial. And I, I wonder, Natalie, if this is how you would have presented this data, this was your data, or if there's some other thought here that I feel like I'm missing. Oh, I share your confusion and I'm constantly like, oh, so 
32 weeks since randomization, if people had to be randomized before 23 weeks, like what, what well, is that? Well, you can that? see the that's, confidence that's intervals get huge. Right, and we know people had indicated preterm Well, there's, there's very small like, ends yeah. to get up to 32, yeah, no, that's right? That's where right. people yeah, are randomized right. in no week people. five. Yeah. Um, and it went six weeks. And it went six weeks. Six and weeks went full term. Right? Yeah. Yeah, it would have been nice to have, at least in the supplement, showing from weeks of gestation and blood pressure. Yeah. yeah. And and honestly, like the three bars for trimesters for simple people like me who are not maternal fetal medicine specialists. I just a like a you know plumber. <laughs> I'm just like a plumber. <laughs> no, we got the joke. We're good. We're good with that. I'm not a plumber. I'm not an interventional yeah. cardiologist. Yeah, we, we, but that's like, what we call you when you're you not know. around. Also. <laughs> I look at ultrasound pictures all day and blood pressure. We just look numbers. at pee all day. It's not rocket science not rocket for us science. either. I'm not looking at pee all day. I don't know what you're doing. Oh, but the FINA is so confusing. We're, yeah. we're looking at pee values, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. So moving on, the safety outcome, and just to remind everybody, poor fetal growth defined as a birth weight measuring less than 10th percentile for gestational age and infant sex. 11.2% of newborns in the treatment group were under the 10th percentile compared to 104 so that was not statistically significant. And the findings were similar in reported birth weight less than the 5th percentile as well, so no significance there. Not only that, they sort of argue for like a normal distribution of the babies, right? Because you've got 10% at less than the 10th percentile and 5% at less than the 5th percentile. It's sort of not, not super skewed, mm-hmm. I guess, from that end. Although, again, like end of two babies delivered in med school. But like, aren't diabetic folks supposed to have bigger babies for gestational age? Or am I remembering that wrong? If they're not controlled. Hopefully right, that's right. Their okay. diabetes. Yeah. <laughs> so. But we're not giving them aspirin, so. <laughs> that was balanced out by the smokers in the study. Oh, All right. So secondary maternal outcomes, which included the composite cardiovascular complications, severe hypertension plus proteinuria, and incidence of cesarean delivery also did not differ significantly. However, the incidence of severe hypertension was significantly less in the active treatment group. It was 36% versus 44 And then incidence of hypertension with end organ damage was lower in the active group of 11.3% versus 15%. And so again, again, severe hypertension, 44%. Why are only 24% of your control group on therapy? Isn't that an indication for all of those? Should all those patients then be on therapy? Mm-hmm. They might have actually gotten delivered because of their severe hypertension, and that would have been the endpoint of the trial. Okay. okay. If only we could do that for our regular Thank hypertension you. people and get rid of their hypertension, that would be great. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Right. <laughs> you fix it. Okay, you're done. We're going to deliver you. <laughs> Primary aldosteronism is kind of the parallel there, right? You kind of deliver the problem and then <laughs> goes away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, only on only on boards, brother. Only on boards. Is fifty percent C section? Is that normal for because these are, there's so much hypertension? Is that what's going on here? There's a lot of obesity that also well, drives it's eighty some odd percent second pregnancy. So we don't know if the, what percentage of them had a C section for first delivery, which could. Man, I feel like we have so many unknowns in this trial. It's just more and more and more. Could have been in the supplement. We wouldn't know. <laughs> You still look and swap? I, mean, I think in the general U.S. population, more than a third of deliveries in this country are C-section. So if you take a higher risk population, 50% is not unexpected. It was similar to what the rates were in CHIP. 
Chips. Chips. <laughs> All right, guys, I'm almost done, I promise. So hypertension with proteinuria favored the active treatment group, but was not statistically significant. And then just looking at neonatal outcomes, which included the composite of severe neonatal complications, placental weight, bradycardia, and hypotension. None of those also did not differ significantly, but preterm births were less um, in the active treatment group at 27% uh, compared to 31%. And I'm done. Yay. Do you want to talk about the sensitivity analysis uh, figure two? Because I think this was, this was something that they talked quite a bit about in the discussion. And this was looking at kind of breaking down where the benefit was accrued. So there was no benefit in two populations, the newly diagnosed hypertension, relative risk 1.000, really wide confidence intervals, and body mass index greater than 40, relative risk 0.98, really wide confidence intervals. Yeah. And actually, that was such a high percentage of the population too, that morbidly obese population. That's 35% of the population. And then the newly diagnosed is 22% of the population. And then the other side of that is a huge percentage of the benefit was in the previously diagnosed receiving medications where we already talked about that they had withdrawn those medications. That was 56% of the population. And they had a huge benefit relative risk 0.73 CI 0.63 to 0.86. So basically what you're saying is the real study here was those who were taken off their antihypertensive medications did worse. Everybody else did how they were supposed to do. You know, you got to be careful about this because these studies are never powered for these subgroup analysis. Exactly. So this is a subgroup analysis. and It does make your eyes pop when you look at that sheet, right? How do you feel about, and I'm probably going to dip my toe into something that's going to incite outrage, but like, should you not look at a p-value for interaction in these subgroups? I know they were pre-specified, but the confidence intervals are wide. They overlap within the subgroups. Like, what does that say about... Swap's about to bring the the thunder now that you mentioned p-values. No, Natalie, Natalie, why don't, instead of, before we let Swap throw thunder, can you, can you explain a little bit more what you're saying for someone, explain it like I'm five. Okay. (laughs) So, and this is my, like, I am an epidemiologist uh, as a side hustle, but. um, I I don't even have that hustle. I'm. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, most people go Uber driver, but epidemiologist, fine, roll with that. (laughs) Epidemiologist, yeah. I like to do analyses of data and I get deep into code, but so, you know, I think there's, there's two groups of thought, right? You have a trial, you think there are certain groups that may respond differently to your intervention, maybe because of obesity, we're saying, you know, we know they're higher risk for preeclampsia. It makes sense to me to have a pre-specified analysis looking at obese individuals compared to non-obese individuals because their risk of adverse outcomes are so high, maybe that would tip the scale either way. When we pre-specify these sorts of things, the power calculation should take into account having enough people in these groups, I think, to be able to look at a true difference as opposed to just sort of an ad hoc difference. So for me, when I look at this figure two, and I see, you know, so we can look at just because I was saying obesity, body mass index, there's three groups, there's the people with BMIs less than 30, 30 to less than 40 and greater than or equal to 40. And you can see the risk ratios on the right with the confidence intervals. And if you look at the picture, right, the confidence intervals all overlap 
you know, somewhere between 0.8 and 0.9. So that to me would say, statistically, you could argue there's truly no difference. The point estimates, those boxes are different, but maybe there's really no difference between those groups. And this p-value in theory would tell you, is there a 95 out of 100% chance that this is due to chance or not? Yeah, no, exactly right. You know, what, what Joel was doing is he was looking at the individual 95% confidence intervals. And that's not what you're supposed to do when you're looking at subgroups. You know, uh, what you're looking at is, are these subgroups consistent with each other? And if the 95% confidence intervals overlap with each other, then they're sort of consistent with each other, even if they, you know, cross one or they don't cross one. Uh, and the interaction p-value actually tests that to say that, hey, these two subgroups are significantly different than each other. So if the interaction p-value was, you know, 0.04, then you would say, hey, you know, the BMI of more than 40 is significantly different than the BMI of less than 30. Now, NEGM stopped uh, publishing interaction p-values a couple of years ago, and I don't know why, but I suspect it's uh, it's because these are not statistically sound. You rarely see interaction p-values be significant. So perhaps because of that, or maybe some other style issue, they took them out. Because they can acquire that, they can get that non-significant just by having a, sh a small n. Right, right, right. But I would argue if you're pre-specifying a subgroup, you should be powered to look at, at that interaction and therefore you should be able to present that. Whether the journal wants it or not, as reviewer two, I want to know what it is. Maybe you don't end up in the paper. Let reviewer but... two go to our head. Have you noticed that, guys? <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? It's too big for my britches. But to me, none of these subgroups statistically look different. The point estimates do, but all of the confidence intervals within the subgroups overlap. So so as hypothesis generating, again, I'm playing devil's advocate. If someone can build a story, you know, like Joel was trying to build a story for, you know, oh, these newly diagnosed hypertension where it doesn't make a difference. And maybe for the chronic hypertension where you withdrew a medication, that's why, you know, you saw an effect there. Oh, man, I fell for Joel's, you know, story, hook, line and sinker, though. I was always like, oh, yeah. No, no, I'm just saying that uh, if you have a plausible story, then, you know, the subgroup analysis is a little bit... Maybe you should look at it a little bit seriously, but again, it's still a fishing expedition. I suspect, like Natalie said, all these interaction p-values are not going to be significant. So, so don't don't read too much into subgroup values. And again, the the other thing people talk about, and and we have we have talked about this on the podcast many times, is that you know there is, there are these famous subgroup studies where Paul Redker or someone I think he looked at uh, what day of the week was you know a procedure done or what was a horoscope sign, and you know if you're a Gemini or a Leo, then you know aspirin works for you, uh, or otherwise it doesn't work for you, something like that, right? So that's the fallacy. Now, Natalie already told us. Aspirin doesn't work for anything anymore. It's preeclampsia or nothing. Maybe, Except maybe, maybe, maybe that's you're it. a Gemini. Yep, it's yeah. Preeclampsia and stents and fresh stents. Please, not nothing. Not nothing. My ACS patients so, need so an aspirin. The, the other side of you know, don't over over interpret subgroups. Uh, I agree. You know, your story is kind of plausible, but let's be a little bit careful. Any other results that we haven't hit yet that we need to talk about? Do we have any adverse events that are important to talk about? How many how many people got uh, vasculitis from the hydralazine? That's all I'm interested in. I hate hydralazine. You are so the first much. cardiologist that's ever said that in the history of medicine. Right. Right. Yeah. I really? Mean, the cardiologists here love hydralazine. I don't it. think they love it. I think they feel resigned to it. Oh, no. no. They love it. Hydralazardil mm. and heart failure reduced ejection fraction is a thing, right? Especially in, in black populations. But that's a, yeah. Yeah. Don't try to justify hydralazine, Josh. Oh. It's terrible. <laughs> 
No, Ahef showed obviously that it is helpful, but I really do not enjoy it between <laughs> the <laughs> frequency of dosing. It is a nightmare. It's a nightmare. Anybody else have any pet results that we have not covered yet that they wanted to highlight? I'm going to go back to my regular drumbeat of we've never proven a low blood pressure is worse for anything than a high blood pressure. And so I feel like even the adverse effects we're looking for are not that much worse in the low blood pressure group. And I wonder if we should be thinking about an even lower target for safety as as a ex- chips to exploratory. Okay, so Josh wants to pursue even lower blood pressures. I want to pursue a study where there's actually separation in the blood pressures. I'm actually actually pretty impressed that they got real clinical differences given the very modest difference in blood pressures. That seems to belie that there is real potential to benefit here. That With a three-point difference in blood pressure, we got real meaningful differences. I mean, I'm looking at there were a bunch of dead kids, like 10 extra dead kids in the uh, in the high blood pressure group. Am I right on that one? Mm-hmm. Fetal or neonatal death at less than 28 days, nine additional deaths in the control group. I mean, dead kids are no fun. Well, despite all the issues we've talked about, I mean, did we say this? ACOG put out a practice advisory and they changed their recommendation. Oh, yeah. They were just waiting for this to come down. You, you could see... That the people that study this for a living, Natalie included, everybody wanted to go to lower blood pressures and they were waiting for the data to go there because they felt that this was the truth and they now have the data, the firepower to support. I believe you want to go to lower blood pressures. I still don't know what number you're targeting here, right? Because your your lower group number is 130 on average and that's better than 133. But I, I guess I'm not sure I understand why a person who is taking care of pregnant people who are chronic hypertensives should be targeting a lower than 140 if the average achieved blood pressure is 129 in the intervention group. Yeah. I mean, I I imagine that, is it obstetricians who are managing these people? So are they actually the ones in charge of titrations? So they've been managing pregnant patients for years. And so they see a blood pressure of 129. They've been on antihypertensives. They're going to be like, Ah, shrug their shoulders and be happy with that number. They're not going to back them off, is what I imagine. They're not hypertensive man, you know, experts. Yeah. The the other thing is the blood pressure method, right? So it's the Omron HEM nine oh seven. I don't know how many obstetricians have that. Even even you know probably Josh doesn't have that. Um, so uh, so you, you you know I mean there is there is data. Uh, Rajiv Agarwal had that study, right, showing that it's about like plus twelve with a poorly done blood pressure uh, compared to the HEM907 with a huge spread, right? Like going from plus 40 to minus 40 mm-hmm. or something like that. So so I guess that's the other thing, right? From a practical aspect, if you say, hey, you know, 130 is, is the target, then if they're using casual, you know, poorly done blood pressure, they're probably, you know, going for 120. Yeah, but this is like the ACCHA picking 130 when the trial is to 120, right? You're like picking a poor measurement with a a multiplier with a huge spread and saying that that's a safe thing to treat people to as opposed to making a good measurement that was used in the trial and going off of that. But you just told us you can't do a good measurement in your clinic. I can do a good measurement in my clinic. I'm just saying it takes time (laughs) and and I have to steal things from cardiology to do it. I'm willing to do it. I steal things from people all the time. You should do it. But I think, you know, we can argue about these numbers. And at the end of the day, we do a terrible job managing blood pressure in this country. And we don't even come close to hitting what you might think are high numbers. So what, you know, I'll play the devil's advocate a little and say like, well, 
do you think we're going to do better if we lower that number that exists on boards and in up to date and you know practice yes. advisories is it going to really drive it down i think that this is going to remove a lot of the inertia for hey it's better just not to treat even though we had chips that showed that it wasn't dangerous to treat it didn't show that there was an advantage to treat and now you got you got dead babies on one side and fewer of them on the other side no i think 140 is the right for number now. at least yeah. for now 140 for now but I think, you know, it's a hard, I can tell you, it's a hard sell <laughs> to get them to go any lower. Do you think this OB gives world. you more talking points to talk with people who are pregnant about working on a lower blood pressure? You'd mentioned that people are very reluctant to add a medicine if they are absolutely worried about causing harm from a medicine. But you actually have evidence now that like, not only are you not doing harm, you are getting a benefit from this. Yes. You're, you're doing benefit. Yes, absolutely. And I think that this is like one of the best things to come out of this study is having more evidence because I could talk about chips before and it was sort of like this very high number and it was like, eh, I'm not even close to 105 diastolic. That, that's very theoretical. This is a real number. And especially for people who had hypertension before they got pregnant, they know that this number is still higher than their goal should be outside of pregnancy. And so if I can say to them, like, look, we understand we're a little more conservative now that you're pregnant or becoming pregnant, but we know that we can't be lackadaisical, right? We need to be pretty aggressive with blood pressure. And if that means you need to take a medicine, look, there's benefits. So don't feel like it's a dangerous thing to do. We now have the evidence that says it's not dangerous. Yeah, and, and let's give kudos to these authors, right? Like if you look at the previous systematic review, 30 trials has like 3,400 patients. And this single trial is, you know, almost yeah. that size with 2,400 patients. So this is this was a huge undertaking. And reverses and, and reverses the meta-analysis. It reverses the dogma uh, yeah. of, of not treating. Yep. So this is this is a positive step despite our, you know, nitpicking and criticism. Yeah, I have tons of slides that were, that were the systematic review before this, that it was like N equals 10, N equals 50, you know, and it's like in the cardiology world, that doesn't get published. It's like, that's not even a K award. Don't go cardiology bragging, okay? Okay, this is a huge study in nephrology land, okay? <laughs> I don't know. Lots of people end up on dialysis. You should be able to enroll we lots should. of people. Those EPO studies had lots of people. Yeah, that didn't work yeah. out so well for us. <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't like to talk about that. You, you, she really, did someone didn't tell her about talking about EPO before she came on board? Come on now. Come on. That's we, need, we need a better intro package. Okay. Anybody? Are we done with this? Are we putting this to bed? Or anybody, anybody have any Put last? it to bed. Yeah. Okay. Put myself to bed. Uh, on to tubular secretions. Swap, do you have a tubular secretion tonight? Sure. So uh, this week, uh, a project that I've been working on for a couple of years came through. It's a, it's a guideline, and it's on one more guideline on contrast-induced acute kidney injury. Contrast-induced? Uh, contrast-associated oh or contrast-induced? Yeah, contrast-associated. Oh, thank you. Post post-contrast, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it's, it's by the Canadian Association of Radiologists. It's an open access publication. I have put out a thread earlier. And the highlight, like the whole push for us making this guideline was let's people give contrast, you know, stop being a barrier. Let, let's make things easy. Don't check creatinine. Just give the contrast. Just give the contrast. Patient is in the eMERGE. Just give the contrast. If they're sick, just give the contrast. If they need the contrast, just give them the contrast. Too bad. 
there's no contrast right now exactly. because the factory is closed. It's a natural experiment. It's a natural experiment. I'm, I bet we will see no change in the amount of end-stage renal disease in the coming months because you know what? Never mind. I won't get. It. Let me off. Let me off my high horse. Please. I kid you not that my most frequent consult last week when I was on was this patient is getting a CT with contrast. Can you dialyze them afterwards? And I'm not even joking. Oh, they still make they still us do. do it. It's insane. It's uh, that insanity is just. Yeah, there is a trial which says it doesn't help. So you know, and it worked. It made it worse. Diane, what do you got? I've been having this recurrent depressing thought every single night the last two weeks. And so you guys are in my circle of trust. So I'm going to let you know what that is. So So it's an entire freely filtered audience, right? (laughs) I don't think about that when I, when I talk about this. So we, uh, every night I put my four-year-old to bed and if everyone has a four-year-old boy, you know that the only time they're ever calm and while they're awake is when you're going to bed and we're reading books. And his his book right now is The Lorax. And I don't know if you guys read The Lorax or know The Lorax, but it's you know about this guy named The Onceler who finds paradise and chops down all the trees and, and makes money and destroys the whole ecosystem there. And I'm like, man, that is hitting too close to home right now. And the end of that book is that he's expecting the next generation to fix all his mistakes. And I, I put him to bed, which is the favorite part of my night, you know, with him in bed, we're reading books, and I'm so depressed, I have to come down, pour myself a large scotch and watch, you know, British baking or something to make myself feel better. So your tubular <laughs> secretion is the Lorax? And and the post-Lorax the depression the is scotch. what we're talking about. And substance abuse. Scotch. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's my life right now. So. Wow. Wow. Okay. It's an advertisement for birth control and not reading children's <laughs> books or something. Like. Birth control is another issue. That's... The Lorax as birth control. Yeah, that works. <laughs> Josh, what do you got for us? I'm sure. So actually staying with the birth control and reproduction theme. Um, I don't know if folks that listen to NPR's Throughline podcast at all. It's a really nicely audio produced podcast that tells different stories. And last week's one was on, uh, is related to the potential Supreme Court decision that may overturn Roe vs. Wade. That's the most optimistic way I've heard put it there. Okay, but yeah. go on. The episode's called Before Roe, The Physician's Crusade. And it's a look back at the history of doctors and doctors' role in initially criminalizing abortion and then later, about 100 years later, trying to make abortion more available. And there was a really nice look at the history of things like the AMA, which I never really loved, but this made me not love them even more. Um, And then the way that things like access to abortion have interfaced with race in America, I think was really interesting. Uh, And it's kind of backwards of how I think some people think about it today. And I think how there's been kind of an interesting alliance between pro-choice doctors and underserved populations in America in the last 40 to 50 years that's kind of new and also kind of uneasy. And I thought that was an interesting set of issues to touch on. It's the first of a two-episode series. And I think since we view abortion is part of healthcare, I think it's helpful to see this whole historical arc and and the social issues it touches on. So really interesting story that I did not know much about before and really nicely produced audio. Excellent. Excellent. Sophia, what do you got? So I've been racking my brain for something other than what's been sort of occupying 
my mind for the past couple of days. And to be honest, I don't really want to bring it up. I cannot get past what's happened in Texas and Uvalde. And I'm struggling with what's happening politically. And I'm struggling with what's happening in Ukraine. And I'm struggling with what's happening with the Supreme Court and what could potentially happen with Roe v. Wade. And I, I don't really want to get into it, but I feel like I'm in the process of putting together like my mid-course review so I can be evaluated for if I'm on track for promotion. And I feel like that is, I have to spend all this time on that. And I feel like that's so trivial compared to the, what's happening in globally and how intense this is. So I I don't have anything else to say. It's just weighing on me rather heavily. And I, I find myself not being able to think of much else right now. Yeah, that's terrible world looks pretty ugly. Natalie, you got something? I'm going to say that I, you know, after I have lived in New York during COVID and the pandemic and moved to California a couple months ago and haven't really been on any trips or anything other than moving across the country. But this past weekend, we took a long haul flight to London and I went to my first Premier League soccer match or football match depending what country you live in which was a super cool experience it was a little unsettling to be around so many people who were, were not wearing masks but you <laughs> versus Tottenham it was, we went to Arsenal versus I don't even remember who the other team was but it was a super cool like very interesting and for that brief 90 minutes it was like the world was normal again and the only thing that really mattered was a sport and being a good sports person and a you know like this very cool positive energy so i will try to be a little uplifting and say that it was sort of a a fun experience and it was sunny in london which was a a first for me too so it was nice to sort of be a tourist again do do you have a deep relationship with soccer do you play soccer i played as a kid and i I just enjoy watching it but i don't play anymore i play tennis now what what are you three five four oh four five what are you utsa or oh 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 oh, sorry i like four that's very good very good tennis player i'd like to insert additional crickets there Joel, <laughs> yeah, we literally have no idea what you're saying. What what does that mean for us? What is a GM? My wife plays a lot of tennis. This is a constant story in my house. Is the levels of tennis of various people in our life? Is this like a handicap in golf? It's like, like a handicap, right? Because you can't play. The whole thing about competitive tennis is you have to have someone reasonably close in your ability, or it's no fun, you, right? And so the United yeah. States Tennis Authority, USTA. They have established a way of ranking players, and you put every result of every match into a system, and then it goes into a giant computer and gives you a number. And the numbers are accurate to half a po- half an integer. So you're a two o or a two five or a three o or a three five or a four, and I think it goes up to six or something like that. But most people are in the two five to four range. And how far negative do they go for the rest of us? <laughs> <laughs> Then you get the big racket and the <laughs> That's switch the ball. I'm and... <laughs> then you just play pickleball. That's what pickleball's great. Pickleball's great. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> so uh, my tubular secretion is we are at that end of the year that I am starting to get the email saying our graduation is at this date. And we already got the big email with the pictures of all the new fellows that are coming in. And I'm reminded that the word commencement 
means both to start and to finish because we are at that point where our fellows are finishing and moving on and our fellows are starting and coming on. It is a very exciting time. It's one of my favorite times of the year when you get to reset and start all over again in July, the strangest time to start a new year.